All right, if you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And this year, as you know, we didn't have a Christmas service, but I am going to give you a sermon this morning that involves the story of the birth of Christ. But as you can see, because you do have the outline, the topic or the theme of this morning's message is not primarily or directly dealing with Christ's birth, but it will spring forth from this passage. So Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading in verse number 18. Matthew 1 verse 18. The Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. If you would bow your heads with me, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you this morning what a privilege it is to think further about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, your coming to this world in human form. And Father, today as we focus in on this precise purpose, why you sent your Son, that is to save uh, us from sin, I pray that you'd make this topic very real to us, very clear to us. Lord, thank you so much for doing for us what we never could have done for ourselves. Thank you for the tremendous love that you have toward us. Please help me to preach now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, there are many things that you could talk about from this passage. I have used uh, these particular verses for a number of, of uh, reasons down through my ministry. You can talk about Mary's side of it. You can imagine uh, what it was like for her to receive the news that she is going to have a son, but she is going to be uh, doing this under the power and influence of the Holy Spirit. What a tremendous event that must have been for her. You can think about Joseph's side of it, right? This is a, you talk about walking by faith and not by sight. To get the news from your wife, I'm pregnant, but listen, nothing funny went on. This is all of God. Joseph had to have been a tremendous uh, had, a, had a tremendous walk with God to be able to go through this and uh, handle things wisely and according to God's will. I want to focus in on one particular thing in verse number 21. That's, that's going to be our jumping off spot this morning. It says that she shall bring forth a son, 
now shall call his name Jesus. Now, there's a particular reason for that. That that word Jesus, if you take it from Greek into English, we would write it as you see it there, Jesus. In Greek, it's it's Jesus, Jesus, like that. But if you go back to Hebrew, it's the name Joshua or Yehoshua. And then if you go from Hebrew to English, you would just write Joshua. Now, the reason this name is significant, because it's actually two words put together. Jehoshua or Jesus, it means Jehovah saves. And that's the reason they gave this man the name, or the Son of God, the name that he has, because of the end of verse 21. For, you see, there's a reason for this name. For he shall save his people from their sins. This is not a foreign concept, I think, to anyone in the building this morning. Jesus himself said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And it's a very common thing in our vocabulary to call Jesus the Savior. However, I have found that uh, a lot of people, when they use that term, they mean different things. Sometimes you'll see somebody say, yes, I, I have accepted Jesus as my Savior because they were in a car accident and they thought they were going to die. They didn't, and they say, Jesus saved me from the car accident. Or they had a sickness and they came out of it, and Jesus saved me from the sickness. Now, is it possible that God or Jesus could save somebody from one of those natural disasters? Yeah, absolutely. Sure, that's a legitimate thing. Even in the Bible, you'll find in both Testaments where somebody refers to God as their Savior in that type of context. However, in verse 21, we see there's something very specific. He shall save his people from their sins. So when you read in the New Testament about being saved, or this phrase, Jesus is my Savior, in a New Testament sense, what we mean by that is we, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has saved us from the consequences, the destruction, the disaster of sin, specifically sin. Now, you don't have to understand the depths of salvation to be saved. I want to make this clear. Just because maybe this morning we're going to touch on some different aspects about Jesus being the Savior. Maybe you weren't aware of all the blessings and benefits that come with salvation. Please do not walk away thinking, wow, I didn't know that Jesus offered all of these things in salvation. So maybe I wasn't saved before, but now I am because I know all that comes with it. You can be saved as long as you understand that Jesus is the one, the only one that can save you, rescue you, deliver you from sin, right? It, that, that simplicity, if you can understand that, believe that, then you can properly call yourself saved. But as time goes on, just like anything in life, but especially with this, the longer you uh, grow, the more you know about the Lord, and what he's done, the greater your appreciation will be for the salvation that he's offered you. And if you're like me, you stand in amazement. I'm now almost 25 years into this, and I'm still learning just how deep this thing of salvation goes and how special and impressive it is. In the song that we sang this morning, I purposely chose this song. It's a great song. I love the song. But the title of the song is, uh, Since the Savior Found Me. Then the chorus, I've always called this song Save, 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 because I, that's just the most memorable line for me. I love punching that, 
those three words. You probably saw me as I let it, save, save, save. Now, the title of my sermon, I got a little excited. Save, 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 saved. We're, we're going to talk about five different aspects or parts of salvation that when we say Jesus saves us from sin in five different ways, five different things. So let's, let's begin to work our way through these. Can I ask you to turn your Bible? We're going to move around in our Bibles a little bit. Point number one, we'll get from Isaiah chapter 2, if you would please. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And if you are filling out your outline, you can write in point one, politically, politically, politically. Jesus saves us politically. Now, you may not have expected that as one of the points, right? But did you know that in Matthew chapter 1, where it says, He shall save his people from their sins. Yes, we are talking about something spiritual there. That, that is, there's a spiritual side to that. But you can read in Luke chapter 1, where Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, he is talking right after John was born. <clears throat> Zacharias begins to talk about the coming of the Messiah. And he says that the Messiah will save his people from their enemies. That's a political thing. He's talking about the nation of Israel. They were in a mess because of their sin, right? God was punishing them because of all of their sin and centuries of rebellion, and they were under Gentile rule. And now they believe that the Messiah, and the, it was prophesied so in the Old Testament, that when the Messiah comes, he will deliver or save the Jewish people from their enemies. So one thing, one type of salvation that Jesus offers his people is political salvation. Now, Matthew 1, 21, it says, He shall save His people from their sins. Now, when we read that, we have the benefit of being 2,000 years on the other side of the cross. And we know that anybody who has received Christ as their Savior can rightfully call themselves one of His people. And, and the blessings, benefits of salvation do apply in that, in that sense. But when Jesus came, right, the body of Christ didn't exist yet. There was no New Testament. That didn't start until he died. So when it says he came to save his people from their sins, it's talking about the nation of Israel. And it's talking about delivering them from all the consequences of their sinful and rebellious past. So politically, that's one of the salvation aspects. Hey, politics needs saving, doesn't it? Right? I mean, isn't this a legitimate point to make? The world is busy constantly trying to come up with different systems. There's different organizations that try to work out different plans and policies to fix the world. I'm going to show you in Isaiah 2 who and how the world is finally going to be fixed politically. Isaiah 2 verse 1, the word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass <clears throat> sorry, in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. This is going to be fulfilled in what we call the millennium. That's that thousand years after Jesus comes back and he will rule on this earth during that period of time. Verse 3, And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, 
and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Now watch this part here. Pay close attention to this. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, farming equipment. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In 1948, there was an organization put together called the United Nations, and we're all familiar with that. Their headquarters is in downtown, well, not New York, New York, New York, downtown New York. And the UN building there on the side of it, you can go on the internet and see it for yourself. They have that last part of verse 4 where I told you to start really watching. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, etc. That is written on the, on the wall of the UN building. And they proclaimed when they organized themselves that they will teach the world how not to war, that they will end all wars. Since they have formed as a group, there have been more wars from 1948 until now. You can put all of history together before that. There weren't as many wars. Can you imagine just in the last 70 plus years, more wars than all the other years, centuries, millennia put together? That's not a very good track record. The world is constantly, and who wouldn't, right, want world peace? I'm all for the idea. That is, as the prophet Haggai said, the desire of all nations. And by the way, the nations have tried this before. The world has tried to all get along and create a one-world government and create peace and unity, and, and they were going to do it. You might remember the story in Genesis 11, right? They were building the Tower of Babel, what we now know as the Tower of Babel, and it says they were erecting a tower. It was going to be a symbolic uh, gesture almost to say this is, you know, we can all unite around this and we'll all come together. And, and God was to have no part of it. Now the man who was in charge of that entire process was an incredibly ungodly, horribly tyrannic man. He, he, not, he not only, he's called a mighty hunter, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. <clears throat> so sorry. <clears throat> However, he hunted people, and he scared them into submission. If you don't do as I say, you die. And by the way, that's almost prophetic in a sense, because as we push towards the last days, seemingly that's what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to use fear to bring everybody together and to unite them. Now, we know how that worked out. The world said, we'll all get together. We'll create this society where you're not allowed to fight. If you try to fight, then we'll just decimate you with our peacekeeping troops. <laughs> and then God came in and said, I'm all for uniting. I'm all for getting along. But if you don't include me in the project, it's not going to work. Because the, the purpose of creating mankind was not only so that we could get along with each other, but we should also have that relationship with God. And they were trying to exclude him from that. When Jesus comes back, as we read here, all nations in, in Isaiah 2... All nations are going to flow to Jerusalem, sit at his feet and listen to the master teach and say, this is how it should be done. Now, the important part of this, if you think this through, in the Old Testament, didn't God come down on Mount Sinai and give his people laws? You, you might be tempted to say, but God's already tried this. 
He came down on a mountain. He gave the law to his people, and it didn't work. So why would we think that Jesus coming and standing on the top of this mountain and teaching, why would that work? Because in the book of Jeremiah, we read this special prophecy. Can I show it to you real quick? Look at Jeremiah 31. It's just the next book over. Jeremiah chapter 31. Years ago when we lived in Malawi, I was listening to the various politicians while they were campaigning. Um, this particular man was running for the office of a member of parliament in a place we called Area 25 where we had one of our churches. And one of his campaign promises, you know how these things go. Th these things can be outstandingly entertaining. This man said, if you elect me as the MP of this area, I will end poverty and sickness forever in this area. Now think about that for a moment. Ending, now this is the poorest country in the world. He is going, not in the whole country, just for his area, he's going to end poverty. How do you do that? End poverty for everybody in that area and sickness. Nobody's going to get sick in that area. Uh, that's called politics, right? That, that's a political promise. That's not a, rea that's not a realistic promise. That's something you say just to get votes. That is what we call politicking, right? You, you know what a poli politics are, right? Politics. If you put the two words together, poly, that's the prefix for many, Right? When you talk about polytheism, that's many gods. So poly is a prefix that means many. Ticks, you know what ticks are. Those are those little bugs that bite you and suck your blood. So politics, those are many blood suckers. <laughs> that's what politics are. But what that Malawian MP was, was promising, right? He can't deliver on that. I don't know if he got elected or not. All I know is poverty and sickness still prevail in that area. So maybe he didn't get in. I don't know. Jesus has said, however, when I come again, I am going to rule with a rod of iron. I'm going to establish my headquarters in the top of Jerusalem in that mountain. The nations will flow, and here's why this plan will work. In the Old Testament, God handed the people his law. The problem was not the law. In the book of Psalms, it says the law of the Lord is perfect. There's nothing wrong with the laws that God gave his people. The problem is the people. That's the problem, not the laws and not the lawgiver. So we have to get everything fixed. And that's not going to happen until Jesus comes back. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Here's the prophecy. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see, the old covenant is what we know from Exodus chapter 20 when he came down on Mount Sinai. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break. You see the problem. I gave them this covenant, they broke it. So God is acknowledging where it went wrong. He says, they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Uh, which as a side note, this is the essence of a marriage. It's, it's based on the vows or the covenant that is made. So God says we entered into a covenant relationship, so that's, that constituted a, a marriage. In verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God 
and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You can see the salvation in that. This is what we refer to as the New Testament, the New Covenant. Do you see, however, that this is a prophecy for fixing the nation of Israel politically? But in order to fix it politically, in order to fix an entire group of people, you have to first fix the individuals within that group. You have to fix their heart. You cannot just hand people a good set of laws and rules and expect the policy to fix them. You fix the heart first, and then they're able to actually keep and follow those precepts and laws. So despite the best efforts of the world, and there are plenty of people, even some politicians, we make jokes about how corrupt they are because those jokes are legitimate, right? They, they have earned those jokes. They've earned that reputation. But even that being said, there are some politicians that are trying to make things better. Despite their best efforts, you cannot fix humanity from the outside in. You can't post good laws on walls and say, because we have a good system, everybody's going to follow it. It's not going to work. Democracy is not the answer. Sorry, America, but it won't work. <laughs> say, we'll invade this nation, we'll overcome the tyrants, and we'll establish democracy. Great. Who's going to run the democracy? Corruption is going to get into that system. You say, well, then we'll use communism, we'll use Marxism, socialism. You can put any ism you want into it. It's not going to work until you fix the hearts of the people. So we need a mixture. We need, what we need is a monarchy, right? A monarchy. But with the right monarch, you need the right king. You need the king of kings. You need the right king with the right laws, and the people need to have right hearts. When you put those three things together, you've created a political paradise. And that is what Jesus is going to establish when he comes back. So part, when we talk about saved or salvation, this is part of it, political salvation. And as you watch the news, right, that's a big deal to think that there is an answer to all of these political problems and chaos and the, the world will learn war no more. I'm looking forward to that day, and Jesus is the answer to that. Can I show you another thing? Come to Genesis chapter 18. This is point number two. Jesus, number one, he saves us politically. And then number two, he saves us from the penalty of sin. Genesis 18, look with me please at verse 25. Genesis 18 and verse 25. Let me introduce this point by reading this verse. There's a, a, a concept here that we need to wrap our heads around. Genesis 18, 25. This is in the middle of a conversation between Abraham and the Lord. Abraham says, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. And then this concept, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's the question that Abraham poses to the Lord. Now, it's a, it's a rhetorical question. Obviously, God, as judge of all the earth, he is going to do right. We have to understand something about God's nature to appreciate 
salvation from the penalty of sin. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. Why? Because the judge of all the earth, he makes a big deal out of righteousness. For, for the God of the Bible, holiness, justice, righteousness, truth, absolute truth, these are all things that come with the God of the Bible. They're a big deal to him. Now, yes, love, mercy, grace, all of those things are a big deal to God as well. But God's love and mercy does not override or ignore the other parts of holiness, justice, and righteousness. If there has been something done wrong, then the judge of all the earth wants it to be made right. God cannot allow sin to just slide. He cannot continually, now he does because he's long-suffering, he winks at it for a while because he's patient, you understand. Can you imagine what it would be like if the, if the creator of the universe, as the moment we sin, if he immediately dropped the hammer? Well, we'd all be squashed. <laughs> There'd just be hammers dropping all over the place. We'd be finished. That would fix the political problem, right? There would be no people left. It would be done. So thank God that there's love and mercy and grace and patience on one side, but on the other side, yes, God's winking, but because he knows eventually I'm going to deal with this. Eventually, you have to stand before God and answer for what you've done. So the judge of all the earth, he's going to do right. He's going to punish sin, but how is he going to punish me? Let's, let's discuss this for a moment. God he is not just the giver of life, but in the Bible you'll find where it says God is life. Right? You find it in both the Old and the New Testament. In the, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Moses told the nation of Israel, the Lord God who is your life. And then in Colossians chapter 3, Paul wrote to the body of Christ and said, for Christ who is our life. Right? He is life. When you rebel against life, what do you get? Death. Right? If life is over here and you rebel and go the other direction, then you're going in the way of death. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the, is the ways of death. Right. So the punishment for sin from the beginning has always been death. Why? Because God is life. You go away from God, you're stepping out of life and into death. When you get saved, you know what's happening? You pass from death unto life. Well, what happens when you step into sin? When you first make that conscious decision in your life to sin, to say, God told me to do this, I know that's what he wants, but I intentionally am going to go against it. When you first do that, you become a sinner. You choose to sin. You have stepped from life into death, and you die internally, which then leads to physical death and so on and so forth down through human history. So the punishment of sin has always been death. We see this in the beginning of the Bible, don't we? Genesis 2, verse 17, the day you eat thereof, you'll surely die. That's what God told Adam. Romans 6, 23, I think you all know it. For the wages of sin is death. Ex or, uh, not Exodus, forgive me. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Very interesting verse, interesting chapter. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now listen to that. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. When we talk about death, what do we normally think about? Physical death, right? We think about our bodies dying. But when we speak about life and death, we need to expand our minds just a little bit. 
life is more than physical existence, right? Life is more than physical existence. And this is where I think the world has become very confused and even blinded to this very important point. There's more to life than just existing. There's more to life than just paying the bills, waking up, going through the motions, right? We feel that internally because in life when we get stuck in that rut of going through the motions, we get down and depressed and we feel like something's missing from our lives, don't we? There's more to life than physical existence. So when somebody physically dies, that's not all. It doesn't end there. That's why in the Bible we read this, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. In the Bible, there's a first death, that's your body. But then the second death, your soul can die. Right? That's what Ezekiel said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So your body can die, your soul can die. How does a soul die? Eternally separated from God. Now, we know where that separation ends. It's not just that you stand in another room, right? Some dark room, and God's in another room, and you don't see Him forever. That dark place, that outer darkness, is referred to as the lake of fire. It, there's suffering. There's torment involved. It's a horrible, eternal existence. But that's, we can't blame God for that. That's our decision. When, when we rebel against life and love and mercy, then we're choosing the other side. Now, Jesus... As we understand, He came to save us from our sins. This involves the penalty of sin. What's the penalty? Death. So what did Jesus do? He says here, give me the sins. I'll become sin for you. I'll pay. I'll take that punishment or penalty in your place. So we know that He dies on the cross. There's Him paying for the first death. But the Bible says in the book of Acts that His soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. So his body went to the grave, but it didn't stay there, right? Because on the third day he rose again. His soul went to hell, but it didn't stay there because on the third day he rose again. So what Jesus did on the cross is he paid for the first death. In hell he pays for the second death. And then on the third day he rises again. And now he says good news, which that's the, that's the meaning of the word gospel. Good news. I have paid for your sins. The penalty of sin, I absorbed it. I took it on myself. Now, if you don't want to feel the consequences or the penalty, you can receive me as your Savior. That is the very heart of the gospel. Some years ago, I'm not quite sure how long ago it was. I heard the story a long time ago myself, but this had to have been over 100 years ago. There was a judge in New York, and at this time, there was massive, a massive crime wave broke out in the city. And in order to curb the crime wave, this judge instituted some very strict laws with very severe consequences. And he said, if anybody's caught stealing, then they get so many lashes with a whip. Now, like I said, this is a while, you know, a while back. You probably wouldn't see such a thing going on in today's society. But sure enough, the, the judge put that law in, into motion. Any thief that got caught, they brought him before the court. Once he was convicted, they took his shirt down and they began to whip that, that criminal. One day, the judge's mother was brought into the courtroom and found guilty of her crime. She was caught stealing. The judge was a very hard-hearted man. 
And he had left his mother. She was fairly destitute and very desperate and it led to her stealing. And now his own mother stands before him and has been convicted. And he's quite concerned at, at the very moment that he has to say guilty, his heart is breaking because he knows this is not only my mother, but I, I'm part of the reason she's in this mess. I should have been helping her, taking care of her, and I left her to herself. And it broke this judge's heart. He looked down at his mother and he thought, what can I do? I put this law into motion, and now I'm going to have to watch my mother get flogged. And he decided right there on the spot what to do. He got up from the bench. He took off his official robes, you know, those long black robes that the judges wear. He took that robe off, laid it aside, came down where his mother was, right there at the whipping post. There she was, tied to the whipping post. That judge laid bare his back, wrapped his arms around his mother, and then looked at the officer with the whip, and he said, go ahead. You can go forward with the punishment. Start whipping. Do you see what the judge did? He's righteous. He's doing justice. He's following the law. He's, He's doing what is right. You have to give a punishment for that crime. But at the same time, because that judge had compassion and love for his mother, he said, let me absorb the punishment for you. I will feel the penalty of your sin. And that judge did. He took every lash. Now each of you and anybody watching and anybody that hears the gospel, hears the opportunity, hears what's being offered, the judge of all the earth, he took the punishment. He wrapped his own arms around that whipping post. They laid stripes on him for your sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. From what? From the spiritual sickness of sin. That judge's mother accepted the loving kindness of her son. You as well have to accept the loving kindness, the the mercy that Jesus is offering. Simply because he felt the penalty for sin does not automatically save you. You have to accept what he did in your place. But that's what it means to be saved from the penalty of sin. Point number three, can you turn to Isaiah chapter 59 please? Isaiah 59, and point number three, you can write personally. Personally. Jesus offers political salvation, salvation from the penalty of sin, and then he saves us personally. And I'm, of course, going to unpack what I mean by that. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. The nation of Israel had a question that was kind of a a low grumble or murmur moving amongst the nation. Is God's power somehow lessened because we're in a mess. Our enemies are attacking and conquering. We're going into captivity. And you know, at this point, it was the Assyrians coming. Why isn't God pitching up? And, and God says to them, listen, guys, my power, my ability to save is just the same as it always has been. 
But there's a reason that I cannot draw nigh and I can't get involved. I can't just step in and, and do what I'd like to do. Now, this does deal with the penalty of sin a little bit. This does with, it deals with the politics a little bit, right? The, the situation of Israel as a nation. But there's another aspect in verse 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. So yes, their sin created a political problem. For their sins, there was a penalty, there was a punishment going on. But there was also, let's say, a personal problem between God and his people. And this, this same principle applies to all of us as individuals. God created us so that he could walk with us. I'm taking you all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Why did God create man? God wanted to enjoy the pleasure of your company. Think about this. Why else does he, he didn't need to create man so that the world could continue to exist, right? The universe could go on. God would continue if he'd never created man. He created us for his pleasure. Revelation chapter 4 verse 11 says exactly that. He is worthy of all glory, honor, and praise, for He's created all things, and for His pleasure they are and were created. God, and he, he created us in His image so that we'd have something in common with Him so that we could walk with Him. But here's the problem. Amos 3, verse 3. I've put it on your outline for you. Can two walk together except they be agreed? You see, God wants to walk together. The problem is We've offended Him. Our sins offend Him on a personal level. Listen, God as judge, now please make this distinction. God as, doesn't the Bible say in Revelation that Jesus wears many crowns? Have you ever heard somebody say this guy wears many hats? You know, he has lots of different jobs and functions. Jesus wears many crowns and he does them all at the same time. So he can be the judge, he can be your friend, he can be your savior, he can be all these things at the same time. As judge, you put that crown or that hat on, he's impartial and I want to say impassioned. Because, listen, there's the law, you've broken it, we must punish you. He's no respecter of persons. He looks at it and says, you're guilty, we have to deal with it. But there's more to God than just that. He wears many crowns. So as judge, impassioned, impartial, but then as your loving creator who's personally interested in walking with you, God looks at what you've done and says, hey, you've offended me. I take your actions personally. You've hurt me. You have created a barrier now between you and I. And we can't walk together because we don't agree on how you should be living. You want to go this way. I want you to go that way. This isn't going to work. This is why in various places in the Bible, Old and New Testament, you read about God becoming the enemy of a person, right? Even in Romans 5, in James chapter 4, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. That, when you talk about his enemy, you're dealing with a personal relationship. Now, Jesus came, and by dying on the cross, he's offering us a way to fix this personal relationship so that two people that were separated right? Our sins have separated us from, from God. We can't see his face. We don't have fellowship with him. There isn't a close personal relationship, 
by Jesus coming and dying for sin, he can close the gap. He can bring these two warring parties back together. This is what we call reconciliation. Reconciliation. When you offend someone, now this is, this is good preaching not just for salvation, but man to man, right? Husband to wife, whatever the case is. This, is. this is a good lesson for any situation. When you offend someone, number one, you owe them an apology. Amen? Is that right? You owe them an apology, a sincere, heartfelt apology. Might I just suggest that you do this face-to-face and not by WhatsApp? It comes across a little better, I think, when they can see your face. Some offenses, some sins require more than an apology. They require a sacrifice. And what I mean by sacrifice, you have to make up for what you've done. Husbands, you know how this goes, right? You blew it. You said something wrong. You did something wrong. Whatever the case, you forgot the anniversary, right? That's a, that's a cliche, but you know. So what do you do? You have to buy her something extra to make up for that mistake. You've offended her. Now her face is hid from you. She won't even look at you until you come with roses and chocolate and a new car, whatever the case might be. It depends on what you did, right? Right? Some of you guys are like, why did he say new car? No. (laughs) Why do you have to go there? (laughs) Merry Christmas. (laughs) So you owe, if you've offended, you owe them an apology. And depending on the size of the offense, you owe them a sacrifice of some sort. <clears throat> this is why when you read through the Old Testament, don't you read about a lot of different sacrifices? There's a peace offering. There's a trespass offering. There's a sin offering. This wasn't only for the Jews. Each culture all over the world did the same thing. They would offer sacrifices to their gods because they were afraid that they had offended their gods and they wanted their gods to show favor and give them rain and food and et cetera, et cetera. This is why the sacrificial system has always existed, because people were afraid we've offended God. Even before God gave the law, you read about Noah giving sacrifices, Cain and Abel, right? It started way, way back with them. Matter of fact, the first sacrifice you ever read about was God giving it. Adam and Eve messed up and God took an animal, slew it, and then clothed Adam and Eve with the skin of that animal. So there's been these sacrifices since sin has been involved. Now think about this, just work, work through this with me. In, in the Jewish uh, faith, in, in the Old Testament, you read about the Day of Atonement. You guys remember that? This is one day a year where the Jews, as a nation, they would all gather down there at the temple or the tabernacle, and then the priests would go in and offer a special sacrifice as an atonement. And this was, as a nation, they were saying, God, we're sorry. We have offended you, no doubt. Right. Yearly, this was scheduled because they knew we're going to offend him. <laughs> Not that they purposely did, although in time that happened, but they said, we know there's going to be things that will offend God. We're going to offer this sacrifice. They called that the Day of Atonement. Now, forgive me, I should have written this out on your outline, but if you write the word atonement, you can write it out like this, A-T, right? I'm going to spell it out for you. A-T, put a dash, a hyphen, A-T, dash, and then O-N-E, M-E-N-T. Do you see what you get? Atonement. What is an atonement? It is a special sacrifice given to say I'm sorry. 
and it satisfies the offended party so that the friendship can be restored. That's what atonement is. A big fancy word you read in the New Testament, propitiation. That's another word for it, atonement. It's making up for what you've done wrong. So, the Bible says in, in Romans, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, we have now received the atonement. But look at the word, at-one-ment. That's what an atonement does. It takes the two parties that are fighting and fussing and brings them back together so that they are now one. That's what Jesus has done. He even said this in so many words on the cross, did He not? There He hangs, and the first thing He says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He, they messed up. But Father, I'm, I'm paying for this. I'm going to offer myself as a sacrifice so that you and them can still walk together. Think this through. In the Old Testament, did people walk with God? Now think about that. Can you think of some people that walked with God? It says Enoch walked with God and was not for the Lord took him, right? Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. Moses, David, Joshua, several people. Daniel, Job, these men walked with God. The Bible actually says that. In Micah 6 verse 8, what's required of man? That we humbly walk with our God. So walking with God was possible in the Old Testament, even before Jesus came. Think about this. When Jesus comes and offers Himself as the sacrifice for sin, this is, this is now. I, we, when we accept this, we're saying, God, we're so sorry for what we've done. We've offended You. We've acted as Your enemy. We've rebelled against You. And I could never offer You a large enough gift to say I'm sorry. My biggest apology would not be enough. So I'm putting my faith in that sacrifice that Jesus made. God, I am so sorry that I can't make up for what I've done. I accept what your son did on my behalf. That's how sorry I am. All the punishment and wrath that was poured out on him, I am accepting that by faith. Please, God, based on that, would you please get along with me again? Would you please walk with me? In the Old Testament, they walked with God, but they didn't have the atoning sacrifice of Christ. So could they come close? Yes, they could walk close with God by being in agreement with Him. Can two walk together? Yes, if they're agreed. But now that we have the atonement of Christ, how much closer should our walk with God be? How much more personal, how much more of His face should we be able to enjoy? His presence, His company, I love the word that is used in John 16, John 14 and 16. When you read about the Holy Spirit coming, you know His name is the Comforter. Do you know another way that you can translate that word that comes out Comforter? Comforter is a good word. It's a, it's a perfect word. Another way to understand that is the one who will be alongside you. Now think about that. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, right? What's He saying? I'm going to be right there with you, walking with you. When he says, I'll come and I've come to save you, he's come to fix that personal relationship so that you can once again enjoy the blessed presence of God and have the alongsidedness of your Savior. Romans chapter 6. Let me show you point number 4. Romans 6 and verse 4. Uh, Romans 6 verse 1. I'm sorry. 1, 2, 4. Romans chapter 6. 
And point number four, practically, practically. When we talk about Jesus saving us from our sins, this works in a practical way as well. Romans 6, verse, four, uh, verse 1 to 4. Now, what I mean by practically, we're talking about overcoming the power of sin. The power of sin. Maybe you're stuck in some sort of sinful habit and you're struggling to overcome some bad behavior. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, the salvation that he offers can help you overcome those sinful behaviors. Romans 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So now that we're saved, our behavior should change please understand the depth of this you can't say well because Jesus has paid for it penalty and now I'm able to have a personal relationship with God right because of that atonement that sacrifice I can do whatever I want and God's going to be happy with it and I'll still get along with him and he'll still love me oh you can't go abusing that sacrifice Paul's point is now that Jesus has died, buried, and rose again, you need to live that out. That needs to make a practical, everyday difference in your life. Verse 3, know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? What's his point? You have been made one with Christ. In another place, the Bible says, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So now the spirit of Christ lives inside of you. You are connected to Him. The two are one. So because that's true, because the Spirit of Christ lives within, you are now not only a part of Him, you're part of His death. And then He goes a step further. You're part of His death, verse 4. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. Now, the baptism He's referring to is that spiritual baptism when the Holy Spirit puts you down into Christ. When you got put into Christ, you were made part of his death and part of his burial. And look what comes next, verse 4. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. You're made part of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now these are doctrinal truths Paul is pointing out. You know the practical lesson he's trying to teach? Because you have been joined to the Lord... Live like it. That's the practical salvation that Jesus is offering us. He says, you want a way to overcome these sinful habits? I died. I was buried so you can put the old man away. I rose again. I walk in newness of life. Now you can do the same thing. You now are, you don't have to live any longer under the power of the old master. Who had control over you before you met Christ? sin it was the master it held you in its prison you were a slave to your sin but now Christ has come and set you free he's broken the chains of sin now you don't have to live any longer to that old master you can live unto your new master you can live unto Christ you'll see it now would you look with me at verse 6 for the sake of time I'm just going to skip through a couple verses here verse 6 knowing this that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth we should not serve sin 
Verse 11, just skip down to that, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's saying you're saved. You're joined to Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection has been applied to you. Verse 11, now live like it. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. God says you're dead. You know what our flesh says? No, I'm not. I'm right here talking. I feel very alive. I feel great today. Just had Christmas. Doing, doing wonderful. And the flesh will rebel against that and say, I'm not dead. Perfectly good. And we have the opportunity. We have the benefit because Christ overcame sin. Because he broke that power, that chain, that, that, that authority that sin had over us. We can say to sin, no, no. I don't have to listen to you anymore. I'm free from this. I have a new master. I can live unto God. I don't have to live unto my own fleshly lust and desires anymore. You read about this in the New Testament, how our fleshly lust war against our soul. We now have power to overcome and win that war. I've given you a couple verses at the bottom of your outline. Acts 26, verse 18. Paul is explaining what Christ came to do and what he was preaching to the Gentiles, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Do you see this, the power of Satan? Turn them from darkness. There's something that had power over you. Look at verse, the verse below it, Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So that darkness, that sinful depravity it had power now because of Christ's victory over sin it no longer has that same power just come maybe one page to the right Romans chapter 8 look with me at verse number 2 Romans 8 and verse 2 it says here for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me what's that next word free from the law of sin and death. I was a captive to sin. It was my captor. It, it was my master, but I've been made free from that. It had power over me. Darkness ruled. Not anymore. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, what was wrong? In that it was weak through the flesh. You see, the law was not the problem. The problem was my flesh. It was me. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So Jesus takes on sin, right? The greatest boxing match ever. There He is going back and forth. And it looks like Jesus is losing, right? Sin has nailed Him to the cross. And then not only nails him to the cross, but takes him to the grave, dead and buried. It looks like sin won, but three days later, you can't keep a good man down. Up he comes. Right? That's what boxing's all about. It doesn't matter who gets knocked down. It matters who keeps getting up. <laughs> Jesus got knocked down. Sin knocked him down, but he got back up. He rose from it, and he says, now I've broken that power. I won that battle, and if you want victory as well, overcoming sin, I can do that. And we are... The Bible says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We can find victory now because of what he did. So you see in verse 3 how it talks about the weakness of the flesh. Do you see that? 
Sin had power, we had weakness. But once you get saved, you have the spirit of life living inside. It's made you free from the power of sin and darkness. So here's the illustration I like to use for this. Think of it like this. You're in the prison. You're sitting in a prison cell. Sin has locked you in. Jesus comes along. He has the keys of death and of hell, yes? And then he says, I'm offering you freedom. I'm offering you salvation, deliverance. From the penalty, I'm offering you personal salvation so that you can have a relationship with God, right? You say, I'll take it. You know what he does? He unlocks the prison gate. He unlocks that door that's holding you in. And now the door swings wide open. But there's another benefit to accepting the salvation that's in Christ. Yes, the penalty is taken care of, and yes, you can have a relationship with God, but you can also get practical salvation. You can begin to practice your life differently. Here's what a lot of folks do, though. The gate is open, right? The prison door is open, but they sit there on their prison bed going, man, I'm saved. Why do I not feel so great? Why aren't things changing? Well, you accepted the penalty part. You accepted the personal part. Maybe you accept the other parts, but now you have to apply the practical part and say the door is opened. Now I have to get up and start living, start walking, start serving and using this salvation, not abusing it. He didn't unlock the door and break the power of darkness so that you could go out and commit more crimes. He opened the door so that you could walk in newness of life. He's giving you another chance. This is the practical aspect of salvation. So if the prison door is open, don't sit there like you're still a prisoner. Get up, get out, and get busy for the Lord. One last thing, Romans 8, while you're there, let's look at verse 11 and verse 23. The last one, and forgive me, I'm going to play with the English here. I needed a word that started with the letter P, as you can see. The presence of sin. Not presence like Christmas presence. I know our mind might be going that direction. Presence as in you're in the room, you know, presence. P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, the presence. Jesus dying for us, he saves us from the presence of sin. Now, what I would prefer to say here is geographically. (laughs) Geographically. But I can't think of a way to word that by using the word present. Can I say presentifically? I'll create a new English word. That's not an English word. Some of you Afrikaners are going, ah, that's good English. Good at yes. It's a goeie, goeie Engels. Yeah, it's goeie Engels. No, it's not. Presentifically is not a word. But he saves us presentifically. Let's pretend it is. He saves us from the presence of sin. Now, might I say that none of us have experienced this aspect of salvation yet but one day we all will at the same time mind you we will all experience this together so this will be a great I want to say memory but a great event for all of us to share Romans 8 verse 11 but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you so if the Holy Spirit dwells in you You have the personal benefit. You've been saved from the penalty. You can overcome the practical problems of sin. All of that is true. He said, but there's one more benefit. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
the Spirit of Christ, then what the Spirit did for Christ in raising him physically from the dead, one day he's going to do for you. You're also going to be raised from the dead, and this mortal body you have is going to be brought, it's going to be changed and given immortality, which means you will have no more sinful nature in that new body. You one day are going to be removed from the presence of sin. Now think about this. Everywhere you go, you take the presence of sin with you. You are the presence of sin. (laughs) That sounds kind of rough, doesn't it? But everywhere you go, you carry the potential for wrongdoing. That's part of having a human body is that potential. But what if you change the human body? What if you get a new body that no longer, you still have a free will because that's part of the soul and the soul is not getting changed. But that body gets changed and no longer are you inclined or leaning towards sin. Verse 23, same chapter. Paul's talking about how creation, all of the universe is going to get fixed. In verse 23, and not only they, the creatures, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why do we groan within ourselves? Because we live in an unperfect world, in a broken world, filled with sickness and corruption and COVID and problems, and right? And to make it worse, we constantly, despite our best efforts, fail to please God. And each day there's something, right? We look at it and say, oh, Lord, I could do better. And we groan within ourselves. But look at how Paul ends this. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit, that, uh, to know the redemption of our body. One day Jesus comes and He fixes this body. This is the event that in the Bible you don't find the word. We call it the rapture. That event is described in the Bible. Jesus comes and He calls out the dead in Christ and then He, he calls a second group, we which are alive and remain. So even today, if he were to come, all of us still, still physically alive, we would get a brand new body, no sin in it. We're immediately taken to heaven. Can you imagine for the next few, what the earth would consider seven years up in heaven? I don't know if they have time the same way we do down here. I don't know if there's a clock on the wall of heaven. Can you imagine what it would feel like to be up there in the presence of God? You just look around. Man, it it must smell. How does clean smell? (laughs) How does beautiful sound? I mean, we we, we will smell colors. (laughs) We'll feel sounds. It will be such a tremendous experience to be in a place where nothing but righteousness and, and holiness and perfect, complete, pure love and all of that is there. And all of you that are saved, if you're saved, you're there, but all the bad parts are left behind. All the little things that irritate you, left behind. Now here's the thing. After, after a few years in heaven, we come back to the earth. We live on this earth for a thousand years, and the Bible says that there will be sin on the earth during that thousand years. Not in us. We are not committing the sins, but there will be mortal people still on the earth. Some people live through that tribulation time, and they will reproduce into that, uh, in, in the time of that millennial kingdom. But then at the end of that time, the end of those thousand years, time is over. 
We enter into eternity. Heaven and earth pass away. A new heaven and a new earth come down. And the Bible says, therein dwelleth righteousness. No sin will ever be found there. In Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, there shall be no more curse. It's all lifted. It's all fixed. For eternity, we live with God and each other in a completely perfect paradise, paradise the way God intended it. No more chance of sin. And, and people have asked this before. They say, Brother Mike, if everything gets set back the way it was and we're in a perfect paradise and God is dwelling amongst man, isn't it possible that somebody could make the same mistake that Eve and Adam did and somebody could eat the wrong fruit and, and then we kind of repeat history? Because that's what history does, right? History repeats itself. What if we were to get stuck in that? There's two reasons why I don't think that can happen. Number one, the devil that deceived Eve, he is thrown into the lake of fire before the new heaven and the new earth come down. So we don't have to worry about the deceiver getting into this situation and interfering. But number two, we have the promise of God. He promised us that we have eternal life and we shall never perish, right? There shall be no more curse. So we have this promise that this immortality, it cannot end. So once we get to that point, never again will we have to worry about, consider the presence of sin and all of its consequences. That, that comes down to sickness, that comes down to poverty, that, it fixes politics, it fixes your relationship with God, it fixes your relationship with each other, everything for the rest of what, I want to say time, but we're in eternity, so there's no time just for the rest of whatever there is. Absolutely perfect. So when we talk about Jesus saving us from sin, politically, from the penalty, personally, practically and from the presence of sin one day we all get to realize that if you perchance are a bit frustrated with how things are going right now in your life say pastor my business is struggling my health is struggling the world the politics the you know racism in this country all the problems that the world has to offer can i just give you a little bit of hope there is light at the end of this tunnel because of the lord jesus christ we know things will come right that doesn't necessarily mean today everything's going to go perfect and smooth, but one day it will. You can at least cling to that for hope. You can look forward to that perfect day. Let me end by simply asking you this question. Are you saved? That's why Jesus came. You say, I didn't understand that Jesus could do so much that He offers so much in salvation. It's okay if you didn't understand all five of these things in the past. Do you understand that Jesus is the only way to deal with the consequence of sin? Let's keep it simple. If you've never accepted Him as your Savior, today you can do that. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if you've never been saved, you can fix that today. Let's all stand if you would, please. Let's stand, have our heads bowed and eyes closed just for a few moments. I'd like to give you a moment. If you've been saved, maybe this morning, just thank God for it. Maybe today there was something that was mentioned that will help you appreciate the salvation that Jesus gave you. But if you've never accepted Him as your Savior, there is a difference between calling Him 
the Savior and Jesus being your Savior. There's a difference. It's one thing to acknowledge, yes, He died, yes, He rose again. It's another thing for you to put your faith in what He did and say, Lord, the only way that I can come right and overcome any of the consequences of sin, it's, be, it's you. You're the reason. You're the way. You're the truth. You're the life. I can't fix myself. You can fix me because you overcame sin. Now, if you've never accepted that today, you can. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right now where you're sitting, whether it's here in the building or there at home, if you're watching, you can pray, you can ask the Lord, please, Lord, I want you to come inside. I want you to live in my heart. Set me free. Please save me. Please change me. And if you've been saved, maybe just take a moment and say, Lord God, thank you. I want to appreciate and enjoy all the benefits of salvation. Especially, hey, that practical part. Lord, help me to apply it. Help me to live like I'm saved. Help me to get up and walk out of this prison cell and go do something with this new life. Help me to walk closer with you. Enoch, David, Abraham, they walked close, but how much closer can you get? He lives inside of us. That relationship should be real. It should be tight. Father, thank you this morning for allowing us to talk about your son and the salvation that you offer through him. Lord, I... I think it's a fitting title. We're saved, 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 and one day completely saved. <laughs> and especially that last saved. Lord, to be in a place where there is no sin, it's hard to even talk, uh, to think about, let alone talk about. We're so used to this dark world. We long for the day. We can see you face to face, live in perfect harmony with you and with each other. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming into this world to save us from our sins. And if perchance somebody is here and not saved, God, work on that heart and let them today receive the greatest gift ever offered, and that is the gift of eternal life. Please work in that heart. Thank you. Thank you for saving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for your time this morning. I hope you have a wonderful new year. And Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday.